Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and if you'd like to follow along using the Bibles in the benches, verses 1 through 26 of that chapter can be found on page 1694. 1694. You'll remember that we left off here in the book of Acts. Luke had just concluded one of his little interruptions describing the character of the early church's activity. And you remember that those descriptions are interspersed by great redemptive acts of God that were going on in the early church. And that is what we are hearing about this morning. One of those great redemptive acts. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is... God's holy, inerrant Word. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while this beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You have handed Him over to be killed and you, were disowned, and you disowned Him before Pilate, though He had decided to let Him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised Him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has given Him this complete healing, as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets, saying that His Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that He may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Me, 
from among your people. You must listen to everything that He tells you. And anyone who does not listen to Him will be completely cut off from among His people. Indeed, all the prophets, from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up His servant, He sent Him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, let's see if we can first locate ourselves in this story. Where are we in this story? Well, here we are in verse 2. This man crippled from birth. This man who is crippled from birth. I want you to think about this man. This guy is really one of the more pitiful members, isn't he? of our cursed and fallen human race. Notice that he is crippled from birth. So that means his whole life, as far back as he can remember, has been consumed with physical anguish and misery. There has never been a day of relief for this man. His pain very likely at this time in which he lived was intolerable because it was not able to be alleviated by drugs that were not... Uh, so strong that it would render him completely without consciousness. This man suffered all the way from his birth. He was miserable physically. I mean, it was so bad, obviously, his condition that he had to be carried if he wanted to go anywhere. This was the pattern. His friends would bring him day by day. Look at the language there. They were, uh, he was being carried, verse 2, and then the second phrase in verse 2, where he was put every day to beg. Imagine being confined in all of your motions and movements to being carried somewhere and being put somewhere. How would you like that? The shame and the frustration, the humiliation of all of the pain and suffering from the time that you were born and people having to carry you around. And not only that, but he was of course begging every day at the temple courts begging the shame and the frustration, the the humiliation of having to rely on other people to provide for your basic necessities. No opportunity because of your condition to have a gainful employment in any way. Yes, recognizing that you were born this way and it's not your fault, but still being frustrated and tired of having to ask people to rise to your defense and take care of you because they certainly have all their own problems. It's pitiful. And think about a beggar in the story. The constant shame, not only of having to beg, but also of being rejected by most of the people who passed by you in the temple courts. You know that's what was happening with this man. Because look at what happens. In verse 4, Peter looks at him, looks straight at him, as does John. And the point is here, this detail is to call to mind, that most people who walk by this beggar, just like people who walk by beggars today, don't even bother to look because they're so miserable and pathetic and pitiful. But this was an exception that Peter and John looked directly at him and said, hey, look at us! Because normally he doesn't expect that the people 
whom he is begging for money are even going to respond. So the man gave him his attention and then, verse 5, expected to get something from them. Because he didn't expect that almost anybody would ever stop and give him any help at all unless they got his attention and then he would expect something from them. Think of all the shame and the humiliation of this man. He is exceptional. He really is one of the more pitiful members of our cursed, fallen human race. He's helpless. It's awful. See, where else are we in this story? We're also in verses 9 and 11. Look at verse 9, that little expression, all the people. Same expression repeated again in verse 11, all the people. Who are these people? Verse 12, Peter is very clear when he addresses them, isn't he? He says, men of Israel, the Israelites. If the man who was the crippled beggar from his birth could be seen as one of the most pitiful members of our cursed fallen human race, then this generation of Israelites can be seen as really one of the most rebellious, hard-hearted generations in the history of the fallen human race. If that man is pitiful, this generation is wicked and obstinate. Here they are at the temple, the temple of the living God. They are a very outwardly religious group. They claim to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their whole life is religious. All of their society, still yet at this time, centered around the worship of their God daily. When did Peter and John come to the temple at this time? It was at the time of the afternoon prayers. They would come morning and evening to attend to the sacrifices in the temple and to attend to the public ordered prayers that were going on. These people's whole lives were defined by religion. Much of their economy centered around religion. And not only that, but think about that. Their national identity as Jews was based not on some distinctive color of their skin per se. It was based on what? The fact that their religion identified who they were. Think about Abraham, the father of Israel. He came out of Ur of the Chaldeans. This Jewish race of people, this Israel, did not exist before God made them. So fundamentally, not only by their lifestyle and their worship and their commitment to their religion, who they are, their existence as this nation is all owed to their faith, right? This is the Israelite people. And yet, this is the very generation when their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, came to them incarnate, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They rejected Him and they had Him killed. If the crippled man is one of the most pitiful and helpless people in the history of the fallen human race, then this Israelite generation is one of the most wicked and obstinate generations that ever lived in the history of the fallen human race. That's what Peter says, right, when he's preaching in verse 13. You handed Jesus over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. Think of the irony of that. Here is this pagan king, this pagan ruler Pilate, who has nothing to say about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even he could see, by common grace, in his own earthly wisdom, that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Now, he was too much of a coward to do anything about it. But Peter's pointing out, listen, if anybody should be able to see it's you. Even Pilate saw that Jesus was innocent. 
You disowned. Listen to the, the strength of that language. For, verse 14, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One. You killed the author of life. You took a murderer and had him released in the place of the one who created you. They are rebellious covenant breakers. That's what this generation is. This is the height of Israel's apostasy in the crucifixion of Christ. You see, God has not forgotten what the Israelite people said when originally they had received the law. Moses took in Exodus 24... Verse 7, Moses took the book of the covenant, the law, and he read it to the people, and the Israelites responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. And not only did Israel forsake him all along, throughout the generations, but this generation put the cap on their disobedience. They went back on their word. Yes, here we are in this story this pitiful man crippled from birth, and this generation of rebellious covenant breakers. Well, you say, wait a minute, that's not me. right? How is it that this guy, these people who lived 2,000 years ago are identified with us? Well, do I really need to persuade us that we are pitiful and helpless as we suffer under the common curse of our fallen human race? The crippled beggar is the accurate picture of who we are and of our condition. Think about his life. What defines him is the loss of physical vigor and health and strength. And let me tell you, there is not a person here who is not closer to death than when they were born. What defines our existence in the fallen human race is on the pathway to death. And no one is accepted from that condition. And of course, along with the progressive loss of our physical vigor and strength, this accompanies a loss of our independence and a loss of our self-sufficiency, a loss of our comfort, an increase of pain, an increase of reliance on other people, and shame and frustration in the anguish of life under the common curse. We all live in this condition. This is not a pity party for us, but this is the reality, isn't it, of living in the world under the common curse. And if this sounds strange to you, and if somehow you see yourself as in a different category of life from this crippled beggar, that's hard for you to grasp this morning, then I want you to go speak, and I mean this literally, to those of our church family after the service who are well advanced in years. I want you to go ask them how it feels to have increased pain as they get older and to have to rely on other people for their basic necessities and find themselves repeatedly asking people to do things that they have a perfect right to ask them to do in terms of help, but they don't want to bother them. Or you go ask those of our congregation, some even from birth, who have suffered with severe physical maladies so that they live constantly in pain. Or some who have suffered under accidents later in their lives. Or some who have contracted cancer. And you ask them what your future is going to feel like if you happen even to avoid these particulars. You will go to the grave just like them unless Christ returns. 
And this is not even to mention all the ways in which we suffer going through life. But this is the fallen human condition. This is us. You have to see that in the story. This pitiful, crippled beggar is our condition in the fallen human race. And honestly, we can't do anything about it, can we? I mean, there are some medications that we can take that will heal us for a time if God is merciful to use those means, but then what happens? We still die. There are certain uh, medications, drugs that we can use to alleviate some of the symptoms and make the pain a little bit less, but does it cure the root of the problem? No! As we go down to the grave and we can't do anything about it, pitiful and helpless, that is us. And these Israelites, this rejection of the God of Israel, this apostasy, this rebellion, is akin to us too. John, the apostle, who's here in this story, says this in his Gospel. He says that Jesus comes into the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. And John's making a play there. He's comparing the apostasy of the nation of Israel that would reject Jesus. He's comparing that, or he's making that a picture of the whole human race's rejection of the God who made them. So when you hear Peter's strong words preaching against the Israelites, you, Israel, crucified Jesus. You demonstrated the wickedness and the rebellion in your hearts by rejecting God. We are quick to acknowledge that that is a picture of our rejection, all of us as members of the fallen human race, all of us as sons and daughters of our first father Adam, having rejected the God who made us. You see, we're not just pitiful and helpless living under the common curse, but we're also rebellious covenant breakers and we are guilty. And just as we can't do anything about delivering ourselves out of a, a pitiful and helpless physical condition, we can't do anything either about atoning for our own guilt or making right what we have done wrong. This is awful. Pitiful and helpless, rebellious, guilty, and unable to do anything about it. Now what happens to us in this story? What happens to us in this story? How does God respond to the helpless, pitiful, rebellious, covenant-breaking, guilty, fallen human race? How does He respond to us? First of all, he sees that we are pitiful. He sees that we are helpless. And even contrary to our own expectation and on his own initiative, he reaches down out of heaven and grabs us and he gives us more than we could ever imagine. That's what he does. That's what he does. Look at verse 3. When he saw, the crippled beggar saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. But keep in mind, right, his gaze is down. He's probably not even have enough dignity anymore to look up at the people who are coming into the temple. We know that because Peter and John had to get his attention. Look at us, meaning the beggar didn't have any expectation, any hope that he would even get a little bit of money to help him. And that's our sinful lost condition. That's us suffering under the common curse and God looks down and He grabs our attention. He initiates it even when we wouldn't expect it. When all we do are sitting here and suffering passively. 
He comes down, he grabs our attention, look at us, the man. We look up then with expectation, expecting to get something, but what is he expecting at this point? The man's not expecting to be healed from all of his pain and misery and dependence and shame, is he? No, he's expecting to get a little money. So even his expectations at this point aren't to the level of the, the mercy of God that's going to be poured out upon him. Peter, this is why in verse 6, when Peter speaks, he says, silver or gold I do not have at the beginning of his sentence. It's kind of a strange way of, of saying that, right? Why does he say at the beginning, silver or gold I do not have? Because Peter is saying, the Lord is going to give you much more than just a few dollars to get along. But what I have, I give you. And by the way, Peter did, and John did have access to silver and gold. Right? They had a treasury. You've just been reading about that. We've been reading about it. The church has been collecting money for people exactly like this to take care of them. So he did have silver and gold, but what he's saying is he's going to give him something greater in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk! And taking him by the right hand, he helps him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. Can you imagine what this man is thinking? He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And he goes in with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping, leaping with joy. Because the Lord God looked on his helpless and miserable condition and grabbed him and gave him more than he expected, more than he could ever imagine. And the picture of him being restored physically as opposed to them just giving him a little silver and gold is pointing out that when God comes to the helpless and pitiful fallen human race, he doesn't only provide temporary relief. He's not like a drug or a medication, but he provides glorification he provides resurrection and the strengthening of the body so that we'll never have any more pain or suffering. It will be restored so that he could go around walking and jumping, something that he never experienced in his life. It caused in verse 11 wonder and amazement, obviously, or verse 10, wonder and amazement at what had happened to this man. It was clearly the same man that had been begging. People, verse 11, were astonished. Come running to see this. That's how God treats the pitiful and miserable and helpless fallen human race. How does He treat the guilty? How does he treat the rebellious covenant breakers? Again, contrary to our expectation and on his own initiative, he reaches down out of heaven and he grabs them and he gives them more than they could ever imagine. And he does a couple of things in this story. First of all, he tells us who we are. Because part of the problem, as Peter says, is that the fallen human race is not only in this sinful, rebellious condition, but they're ignorant of it. They don't even realize that they have sinned against the Holy God and that they owe a horrible, outstanding debt to Him. They don't even know. But one of the kind of things that God does is, first of all, He tells them. He persuades them of their guilt. This is the, the main content, the beginning content of the sermon that Peter is preaching to them. He's preaching the law. He talks about their active sins. He talks about the, the actual handing over Jesus to be killed. 
He talks about the unbelief in their hearts that caused them to do it. He talks about their hypocrisy. He talks about their ignorance. This is what God does to His people. He persuades them of their guilt. He teaches them this. He is preaching the law. Now you've seen this sermon. Maybe you recognize it. It follows a very similar pattern to the sermon that Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. In fact, the pattern of this sermon is the pattern of how the apostles preached. It's the pattern that we use in our own preaching. Guilt and shame. God is actually kind to show us that we have violated His laws and doesn't leave us like the rest of the world in the ignorance and the pride of thinking that somehow we are acceptable to Him as something that we've done. God has been kind to show us that we are in this story as rebellious covenant breakers. But it's not that He just tells us and persuades us of our guilt and leaves us there, right? Not at all. Far from it. In fact... He makes provision. He announces, Peter announces to the rebellious human race, God announces to us that He has made provision for our sin and shame in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 19, Your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He persuades you of your guilt. And then He tells you that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing are for you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of the titles that Peter ascribes to Jesus throughout this story. Verse 13, he calls Him uh, this servant, Jesus. God has glorified His servant, Jesus. His servant. He uses that word also at the end of the sermon. And the people to whom Peter is speaking, when they hear that Jesus is called the servant of God, that doesn't just mean in general that Jesus did what God the Father wanted Him to do. But the servant of God, this person, was talked about in the Old Testament Scripture. And you remember this from uh, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 52, God says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who would be appalled at my servant, his appearance was so disfigured and beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond any human likeness, but this my servant will sprinkle many nations. And when Peter is proclaiming that Jesus is the servant of God, he wants the people to look back to the prophecies about that servant to understand what Jesus has done for them. Isaiah 53, Surely my servant took upon... or surely the servant of God took upon... Himself, our infirmities, and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God and smitten by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. You see, when Peter is proclaiming Christ, when God comes to you and reveals your sin, He right away says to you, but I am not condemning you for your sin because I have put My servant to the cross to pay the penalty for all of your sins, to wipe out all of your sins and to refresh you. This is how God responds to rebellious, hard-hearted people. He proclaims in verses 14 and 15, look at that title of Jesus, the Holy and Righteous One, the Author of Life, which God raised from the dead the Holy and Righteous One, the Author of Life, that God raised Him from the dead. This is to assure the people who are listening 
that as Jesus came out of the grave, it was proof that God accepted not only the sacrifice of His blood to pay for our sins, but also that He did live a perfect life. And so He would be justified. Unlike our first father, Adam. Because if Adam had passed the test that he had been given, then he would have been justified. He would have been declared righteous and holy for his obedience, but he didn't do it. And so Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, and God bringing him out of the grave, calling him the holy and righteous one, raising him out of the grave, is God saying to all of us that that obedience was perfect, and I do accept it on your behalf. And not only that, but of course Jesus has the power by His resurrection, as He is also the author of life, to work His resurrection power in you. Even though you don't deserve it. Even though you find yourself in this miserable, helpless condition. Verse 22. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. In other words, there is no confusion about how you may be made right with God. You have to listen to Christ and what He says, which is, cast yourself upon me and I forgive you of all of your sins. My blood will be shed for you. My righteousness is credited to you. You may have confidence in His promises that all who come to Christ will by no means be cast out and that He will lose none of all that the Father has given to Him. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you may have confidence that that is the sure word of the Father. as Christ perfectly represents His will to come to the fallen human race and to save them from who they really are. So that's how God looks at you this morning in all of your helpless, pitiful, sinful, guilty, shame-filled, discouraged, lonely, stressed condition. He gives you more than you expect. He gives you grace. He receives you with compassion. And He will pour out the power of His glorification over you. Now what happens to us when we are delivered from our helpless, pitiful, rebellious, covenant-breaking, debt-owing condition? Verse 8. He jumped to His feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. Our response is praise. Our response is praise. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable that God has come to us when we didn't want Him and has given us everything. And all we can do then is cry out in praise and thanks to Him. And along with this stunned cripple who has been healed and is experiencing the ability to walk and jump and leap, it just comes naturally to us now to praise God. What else can we do? Verses 19 through 21 is what happens to us too. Repent and turn to God. We're patient, verse 21, as He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through the holy prophets. 
Right? We go forth praising God. We go forth in repentance from our sins, delighted that the glorification is coming to us. Some people hear this and they say, well, wait a minute. I don't have, though, what the lame man had because I may have been taught that I'm sinful and guilty and I may have seen that Christ has atoned for my sins and His righteousness has been given to me, but I don't enjoy the walking and the leaping yet. I'm still trapped in my frustrations, my aging, my death, my dependence. What about that? Well, keep in mind that these little foretastes of the glorification were exactly that. They were only foretastes. Eventually, this crippled man who was healed died and he, uh, his soul went to be with the Father. His body still today is in the grave waiting for the great day of glorification that will be conferred upon him. But listen, when you believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorification is yours and you may celebrate that you have been justified and that what you are waiting for is the great day when you will receive the fullness of all of His benefits. And that day is coming when your bodies will be delivered from all of their pain and anguish and susceptibility to aging and, and pain and death. This is what the church was conferring on people, by the way, back in that day, and the church is still conferring this on people today. The law and the Gospel, you know, they're not outwardly very powerful. People don't get excited necessarily when they hear the law or the Gospel preached, but think about what's happening when people come to a knowledge of their sin and guilt and people come to an assurance of their salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just some mental thing that's being granted to them. But what's being given to them is all of the glories of the age to come also. And you have that hope with confidence to this morning. Peter, later in his life, writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith right now in Christ are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, the fact that you have the truth now and that salvation is yours and it's guaranteed to come into your life later, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Because God has looked at us pitiful and helpless, rebellious and guilty and shameful. And on His own initiative, He reached down out of heaven to save us and to bring us glory. Let's go forward walking and leaping and praising God and casting off our sins to His glorious praise. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in Your kindness to us and with Peter we praise You, God and Father of our Lord Jesus, for giving us new birth into this living hope by Your mercy. Thank You that You look upon us helpless and pitiful. 
and ignorant and guilty. And yet, You love us. And You give us forgiveness and obedience and the glorification which is coming. Thank You, O Lord. Help us to devote afresh all of our life and all of our ways unto You. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.